Oh, sorry. I was uh, sorry for being uh, late there. I was just uh, uh, on a uh, coming back from a, a long journey. Um, a lot of crazy things happened. A lot of twists and turns. Crazy twists and turns. I wish there was a word to perfectly encapsulate the kind of journey that I just had, but no time for that now. I need to talk about Homer's Odyssey. That's right. Tonight we are talking about the Odyssey, not the CBC 1992 children's TV show, The Odyssey, about a boy in a coma, just in case that's what you thought you were going to be hearing about tonight. No, we are talking about another ancient Greek classic, on Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. So welcome back to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. I'm Jesse. And uh, once again, if you do like the kind of uh, stuff that I do here on this channel and you um, haven't subscribed yet to the channel, please, I highly encourage you to do that. If you like tonight's video, uh, please feel free to um, like the video which sounds tautological, but actually makes some kind of logical sense. Um, if you are listening to this podcast, please feel free to rate and review the uh, audio version as well. And with that all out of the way, let's talk a little bit about Homer's Odyssey. I have to say, I, I mentioned this um, in a couple of my posts uh, we've talked about three books now. We've talked about the Epic of Gilgamesh. We've talked about the Iliad. We've talked about, and now tonight we are talking about the Odyssey. And I have to say so far out of these three books that we've looked at, that the Odyssey is my favorite of those three. It's a very exciting story. A lot of uh, sort of adventurous episodes in it. Uh, I think in many ways, although I think the Iliad is pretty exciting in terms of it having this sort of large, epic, sort of heavy scope to it, which I think is, and I will say actually at the same time, I think that my reading the Odyssey, rereading it, because I read it uh, a few, well, I read it about 20 years ago. Uh, it was the first book that I ever read as part of my uh, undergraduate degree. And um and so this is the first time rereading it since then. And I had never read the Iliad. So when I talked about it uh, a few weeks ago, I read it specifically for that discussion. And I enjoyed the Iliad, but, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily rank amongst my all-time favorite books. But I think that th my reading of the Odyssey, my rereading of the Odyssey, um, made me like the Iliad more because it kind of gave me a sort of fuller perspective of the world out of which texts like these are emerging. And I think that after reading the Odyssey, although it's an extremely different book from the Iliad, for and we'll talk about those differences um, throughout tonight's discussion, it's a very different text, um, but nevertheless, uh, it gave me a sort of fuller understanding of this world um, that produces both the Iliad and uh, the Odyssey. So both are roughly uh, emerging at the same time. Um, one thing that I do want to say just to start us off, just as a sort of a point of comparison, you might recall a few weeks ago when I talked about the Iliad, I talked about how I thought that the text was a kind of a nostalgic um, story that, or it was at least maybe tapping into 
the nostalgic um, desires of the era in which it was um, most likely written down for the first time, probably had, would have been performed for a few hundred years. You'll recall that, you know, I talked about how in the Iliad, what you see is a representation of a time um, that would have been about, I think, roughly around 400 years earlier. And that what we're seeing in the Iliad is a kind of a reminder of, hey, remember when we had sort of glory, we had these huge, big, epic moments because the um, ancient Greek world would have seen, had seen a, a kind of a collapse um, and it had entered into a dark age. And when the uh, Iliad is being written down, it's emerging out of those dark ages. And I think, I think I said at the time, and I can't believe that I seem to keep coming back to this phrase over and over and over again, or variations of this phrase over and over again in the podcast, but there is a kind of make ancient Greece great again vibe, I think going on in the Iliad. Hey, remember this time we had glory. Um, and, uh, the Odyssey, at the same time, I think, also taps into that nostalgia in a very different sort of way. But uh, as um, one writer, Anna Sophia Lessev, writes, nostalgia, the term we use to describe longing for what has passed, comes from the Greek nostos, meaning homecoming. Nostos is the central theme of the Odyssey, the epic following the hero Odysseus, as he seeks his way back home from battle in the Trojan War. So yeah, there is this kind of nostalgic element to the Odyssey as well, just as there was to the Iliad. Again, in a very different way, right? Um, in some ways, the Iliad was tapping into the nostalgic desires of its audience. This is just a, a theory of mine, but I'm guessing that this time period is a very sort of nostalgic time period, a period where a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people are probably looking back to a prior time and saying, how can we get back there to some degree? So you have the Iliad, which is in some ways very reverential about this earlier time. It's not reverential necessarily about a lot of the things that were going on during that time. Like it's not necessarily taking a, a particularly positive view, I don't think, on war or the kind of extreme violence that is at work in that text. I don't think it's joyous necessarily about that, but it is, it does remind me actually, um, I teach a course sometimes uh, about the super, about superheroes. Um, and we mostly focus on sort of the um, 20th century American superheroes. And there is this um, very canonical superhero text in the 1980s, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller. And at the very beginning of The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, there's a little opening where superheroes and even villains are all sitting around in a bar. And it's a, it's a story that's written by Jimmy Olsen, who is, of course, the the, the the newspaper kid from the Superman series. And so there's this kind of opening bit where you see a couple of um, strips from the newspaper, this piece written by Jimmy Olsen. And this line that comes up of, you know, this is a reminder of when we had heroes. 
If it's not in that part, it's certainly somewhere in The Dark Knight Returns. And The Dark Knight Returns is in many ways, I think, my reading of that comic is that it's about Frank Miller really mourning the loss of a particular time where a particular kind of hero was revered in society, not just in the society of the text, but in the society at large, and that that had gone away, that that had slipped away over time. So I think that Frank Miller is would have probably been reverential. I mean, certainly uh, the Batman in that story is very much based on Dirty Harry, but Dirty Harry, a 1970s kind of um, uh, cinematic character, is very much tied to that earlier brand of heroism of people like John Wayne that I think Miller is is um, celebrating in some ways and also mourning the loss of. And so I think that in some ways the Iliad is doing that too. And then you have the Odyssey coming along, which is essentially saying, you know, uh, I, I just want to get back to this place, my home that I can't get back to. Um, so it's it's doing very much the same sort of thing. Remember, remember how happy I was, because remember Odysseus as well, He's been fighting in the Trojan War. If you remember the Iliad discussion, the Trojan War went on for 10 years. And then the events of the text, which I'll talk about in a few minutes when I give a synopsis, go on for about another 10 years. So Odysseus hasn't been home for almost 20 years. So he's really looking back into the past and trying to get back to this place. So there is a kind of nostalgia element at work in the actual character in uh, the Odyssey, which I think is is um, quite significant. So um, now, despite the fact that we can see these similarities, there's uh, many scholars today, and I've learned this mostly through some of the research that I've done over the last week. It seems to me now that the prevailing belief amongst scholars is that the same author did not write the Iliad and the Odyssey, that in fact, Homer, whether Homer wrote any of the two books, we don't know. But many scholars will say whoever wrote the Iliad most likely did not write the Odyssey. Now, I'm not going to take a stance on that. I'm not an expert on this era. I, I will say they are profoundly different texts. Um, but, you know, there are also um, auteurs who can write about a, a, a large variety of subjects, right? And some filmmakers, for example, can make a, well, look at somebody like Steven Spielberg. You know, he can make a, you know, horrifying war film like Schindler's List or, or one that really focuses on battle like Saving Private Ryan, or he could make a more, you know, um, lighthearted, um, fairy tale like story with a movie like E.T. So who knows? They are extremely different, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and maybe they were written by two authors, um, but they are two very, very different texts. But uh, I, I'm not going to take a stance either way. I just wanted to put that out there to let people know that that seems to be the general consensus at this point. And in fact, the version that I am that I was reading was the same 
um, was translated by the same person who translated the Iliad version, which means that I read a version, in fact, that um, changed all the names to their Roman counterpart names, which is uh, which is interesting because it meant that I was not reading about Odysseus. I was reading about Ulysses um, just to make things clear for people who are watching this. I am going to refer to them by their Greek name. So I will call him Odysseus and I will call Minerva Athena. Athena plays a, a significant role in this story as well. The god, the goddess Athena. Um, Samuel Butler uh, was the person who translated this story. Uh, these translations go back to, I think, the late 19th century or turn of the century around that time. Samuel Butler apparently argued that he believed that the Odyssey was written by a woman, which is uh, a very significant claim. Um, and I can kind of see some basis for it, and I'm going to walk this back in just a few minutes. But um, but certainly, women have stronger roles in the Odyssey than they do in the Iliad. In fact, there are many, many um, women roles in the Odyssey, from uh, Odysseus's wife Penelope, who's a very strong character, to um, Calypso, the goddess to Circe, uh, a sort of another sort of witch goddess, um, uh, and um, several other characters. In fact, I would say that in some ways, Helen, whose story basically launches, I use that word purposefully, launches the Iliad story um, and is in the Iliad, uh, nevertheless, I think is maybe written even better in the Odyssey than she is in the Iliad. And as we will talk about in just a few minutes, you'll recall that when I talked about the Iliad, I talked about it as uh, a very brief moment in the story of the Trojan War, and that even in the story of the Trojan War, we don't get sort of the big canonical moments of the Trojan War in that story. We don't even get the story of the Trojan horse in the story of the Iliad, but we do get the story uh, in the Odyssey. And it's told by Menelaus, who you might recall was the husband of Helen um, before Helen was taken away by Paris. Um, Menelaus and Helen are now together and they're, you know, telling fond stories about the Trojan War. Odysseus's son goes to, you know, find out what's happening to uh, his father. And they, Menelaus and Helen sort of sit him down and tell him the story of the Trojan horse. So that story is in the Odyssey, interestingly enough. So, um, so yeah, there are a lot of prominent women characters in the Odyssey, um, but others have argued that the Odyssey is very much a paternalistic text. Um, I think a glaring example of that is the fact that, um, you know, as I say, Odysseus has been gone for 20 years. And the I think the prevailing assumption by all concerned and by the text, I think one could say that it's the assumption that the text itself is making, not just necessarily characters in it, that, you know, Penelope should keep herself um, chaste for the entire time that Odysseus is gone. Meanwhile, Odysseus is having sexual relationships with Calypso for seven years, with Circe, 
uh, leaves. Cersei comes back, continues on with her for one more night, comes back to Penelope. So there are certain assumptions that are at work. At the same time, I will say, even though the text makes those assumptions, um, there are moments where it questions certain paternalistic assumptions as well. Like when, for example, Calypso, who has been keeping Odysseus against his will for seven years, the gods come down and they say, okay, it's time for Odysseus to come home. And Calypso makes this argument like, you gods, you know, you now you always get, you, you don't seem to ever have a problem when any of the male gods um, take women. But now that I have Odysseus, you suddenly seem to have a problem with it. And you know what? She's making a point there when she says that. I think that the obvious con conclusion that one would probably make in our time is that you you probably shouldn't hold anybody against their will. Um, so that's not really the conclusion that they draw <laughs> in this text. But nevertheless, I think that uh, I think that that's an interesting moment. And I think that there are a lot of interesting moments with Penelope as well that kind of push back a reading of the Odyssey as being this kind of very paternalistic, patriarchal text with um, with with exclusively patriarchal assumptions. It is making some, but I think it pushes back against others as well. So uh, we'll talk about that uh, as we continue to go on. But before we do, I thought I would read out a synopsis that I have written um, of the Odyssey for you. Uh, let me just find it here. Uh, hold on a second. Okay. Okay, so I've written a synopsis. I'll try and make this as, as quick as possible, but I figure for those who haven't read it uh, or who have read it a long time ago, like was the case with me, that I would read it out for you now just to see, uh, just to get a little refresher. So there are spoilers ahead, so keep that in mind as I'm, as I'm reading it. Let me take a little drink of my tea here. Okay. So it's been 10 years since uh, the end of the Trojan War, uh, uh, which was itself 10 years. Odysseus still has not returned home to his uh, uh, home of Ithaca, and he's presumed lost, if not dead. Um, the first couple of chapters of the Odyssey, in fact, do not focus on Odysseus at all. They focus on his home, which has his son, Telemachus, and his wife, Penelope, in it, and these group of suitors. Many, many, many suitors, all the kind of young, viable male candidates in town. It's like a it's like a crazy version of an episode of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I'm not sure how they work exactly because I've never seen an episode of those shows. But um, there's no shame in that. But uh, there's all of these male suitors who are hanging out at Odysseus's home waiting for Penelope to choose one of them to be her new husband. But they're not only doing that, they're also eating all of all of the food in the house, they're harassing the servants. Um, they're generally causing a, a pretty bad time in the uh, palace. Uh, king uh, Odysseus is King Odysseus after all. Penelope uh, has been putting them off for years. Um, first, she deceived the suitors by telling them that she would choose a husband once she had completed sewing a death shroud for her father-in-law, Odysseus's father, Laertes, which is probably, Laertes is probably thinking, what? You're doing what? A death shroud? I'm, I, 
I feel, I actually feel pretty good. Um, so that's what she's telling him. She's going to be, she'll make this death shroud. Once she's done making the death shroud, she will choose one of the suitors to marry. But in fact, what she does is that every night she undoes, secretly undoes all the sewing that she did that day so that she never ultimately finishes. Now, uh, Athena, the goddess, uh, essentially convinces Odysseus's son, uh, Telemachus, or Telemachus, depending on just what you want to say, uh, con convincing the suit she um, is convinces him to convince the suitors to leave. They don't, um, and she then uh, convinces him, or around the same time, to travel to get news of his father. Now Athena knows that Odysseus is alive. She's not going to tell Telemachus because that would just end the story. So she tells him to go off on a mission to find out if. Uh, Odysseus is still alive. Uh, he meets characters from the Iliad, as I mentioned before. One of them was Nestor. I don't think I talked too much about Nestor when I talked about the Iliad. Nestor is kind of was the old sage of the uh, group of men fighting the Trojan War amongst the Achaeans in the Iliad. He's always kind of stopping things to kind of wax poetic about what they should do. He's seen so many things. He's had so much experience. They always are like, yeah, okay, okay sure. Thanks, Nestor. Um, but Nestor uh, uh, tells Telemachus about the fate of Agamemnon, who, if you might recall, was basically the leader of the was the leader of the Achaean army. You'll recall that Agamemnon and uh, Achilles were the ones that got into the argument that sent Achilles off sulking for most of the book. Um, but Agamemnon's fate, unfortunately, doesn't end well after they win the Trojan War. Uh, he comes home to find that his wife remarried while he was gone, and both his former wife and her new husband conspire to murder Agamemnon, and they do so. And Agamemnon's son uh, then kills both his mother and her new husband for revenge. So not a particularly fun story to tell over dinner, but that is what Nestor tells Telemachus. Then Telemachus visits Menelaus and Helen, as I mentioned before, and they tell, uh, they talk about how, Helen talks about how Odysseus disguised himself as a beggar to infiltrate Troy. Menelaus talks about how his father came up with the idea of the Trojan horse. So again, not only do we get the story of the Trojan horse, but we find out that it was Odysseus's idea to bring the Trojan horse that ends up being the thing that basically leads to the end of the Trojan War. Now, Menelaus and Helen also relay secondhand news that Odysseus is still alive and trapped by this goddess named Calypso. At that point, the story kind of shifts towards Odysseus. We see that, in fact, he has been trapped for seven years. Uh, the gods convene and convince Calypso, Calypso to let him return home. She agrees after she makes that statement about how it's very hypocritical that they're making her uh, do this, which is very much true. Uh, then, uh, but on his way uh, out of Calypso's island, he is shipwrecked and he lands in on an island called Scuria, an island of Phoeacians, where the king and the queen prod Odysseus, who first doesn't really tell them who he is, but eventually does. They uh, prod him into telling his story about how he got there. Now, what we get at that point is basically what we tend to think of when we think about the Odyssey, right? All these crazy stories about different crazy places, right? Uh, so uh, I think right around chapter nine, uh, Odysseus launches into the story that we tend to think of when we think of 
the Odyssey. So I've listed a few here. These are not quite in chronological order as they appear in the text. They're just kind of the best way to sort of explain the next couple of chapters of the text. So what happened to him uh, after the Trojan War? Well, first they went to go and ransack more lands. Uh, then they go to the land of the Lotus Eaters where the crew is bewitched. Uh, Odysseus is, somehow manages to drag them uh, off of the land. And then they, they do other things like they avoid the sirens, these beautiful women who bewitch men with their song. Um, Odysseus manages to avoid his crew getting taken in by the sirens by putting beeswax in their ears. But Odysseus, being the kind of guy that Odysseus is, he still wants to listen. So rather than put beeswax in his ears, he just has his men tie him up. And as soon as he hears the siren song, he's like, let me go, let me go, let me go. And they don't let him go, which is fortunate because that's probably where we would lose Odysseus for good. They don't let him go. They manage to escape the sirens. Um, then they, they go to a land of giants who eat some of Odysseus's crew. They escape a six-headed sea monster, but not before it uh, eats some of his crew. They end up in, at the land of the Cyclops. The Cyclops, yes, eats some of Odysseus's crew, and it captures the rest. Uh, Odysseus uh, tells one of the Cyclops named, uh, forgive me if I'm not getting this name pronunciation right, uh, Polyphemus, Polyphemus, uh, that his name is No Man. So Polyphemus asks, or Polyphemus, the Cyclops. We'll just go with the Cyclops because it's the main Cyclops. The main Cyclops asks Odysseus, what is your name? I'm assuming that's that's my best Cyclops. He says, what is your name? And and he says, oh, I'm Noman. Noman. Uh, and so then uh, he says, all right, Noman. And then they have some drinks together. And then while uh, once the Cyclops is good and drunk, the Cyclops likes a good drink, good stiff drink. And uh, then he gets drunk and he kind of, I think he falls asleep. And so then Odysseus takes a, a pointed stick and uh, stabs the Cyclops in his one eye. Uh, and then the Cyclops starts screaming, uh, at which point the other Cyclops hear Hit the Cyclops is screaming and they rush and they say, what's happening? What's happening? And the Cyclops says, no man is killing me by fraud. No man is killing me by force. Uh, and so then the other Cyclops just kind of leave because they think that he's saying no man. They're, they're not a particularly bright group of people, it seems. Um, so, you know, Odysseus has... Uh, obviously planned out this trick, this long-term trick. It's a long con uh, where he starts off by saying, my name is is No Man. And so then the Cyclops is saying, No Man is killing me when he's screaming out in pain. Now, as Odysseus is escaping, he says he can't, again, he can't help himself, but say, you know who got you, Cyclops? Odysseus got you. Now that's a big mistake. Because who overhears him at that point but Poseidon? Poseidon is the sea god. And it turns out that um, the Cyclops uh, uh, is his brother, I think. Brother or son, one of the two. Anyway, they're, uh, they're related. So then Poseidon is, is really upset and he decides to curse Odysseus. And it's this curse that is what ends up preventing Odysseus from re easily returning home. So then they end up on the island of the witch goddess, Circe. Um, she turns a couple of Odysseus's crewmen into pigs, which I guess is slightly better than eating them. Um, he manages to convince her to turn them back into people. Um, but also Odysseus manages to 
con- convince her of that, but then also ends up getting entangled in a real romantic relationship with her for about a year. Um, and then, but after that amount of time, he's convinced by his remaining men to leave. Um, Cersei tells uh, Odysseus that the best way to get home is to first go to Hades, right? The underworld. Uh, we've talked about the underworld, I think, in... Well, we certainly talked about it when we talked about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, it's coming back here. And she wants Odysseus to get a message from the prophet Tiresias. So then Odysseus does go to Hades. Um, he sees a bunch of other dead people that he knows, as we have seen throughout the whole, throughout the Iliad, throughout the, the Odyssey. Um, several of his men, one who kind of fell off a roof, uh, Odysseus, a lot of bad stuff ends up happening to Odysseus's man. A lot of bad stuff happens to Odysseus too, but Odysseus manages to continually be able to get himself out of these disasters. Um, so what does Tiresias say? Well, Tiresias by and large predicts the rest of the book that Odysseus hears the spoilers. Odysseus will return home. He will kill all the suitors, but then he'll go off on this other journey in order to break the curse with Poseidon. But he says that they'll end up on, an, um, before they, before they manage to get home, they will end up on this other island. It's the island of the sun god. And Tiresias tells Odysseus, he says, listen, whatever you do while you're on this island, just focus on getting home. Just continue to stay focused on getting home. You'll see cattle. You'll see sheep. Do not eat the cattle. Do not eat the sheep. Just keep focusing on staying home, whatever you do. So they go to the island of the sun gods. Odysseus's men, of course, they eat the cattle and the sheep. Once again, they just keep causing problems for Odysseus. Um, and all the men at this point are killed, just killed off. You know, it's it's really about time. I, I, I mean, I have, it's they're fictional characters, so I can say this. If they were real characters, real people, it would be a different story. But for the love of God, they've caused so much problems at this point. Just wipe them all out. It would be much easier. Save Odysseus a lot of trouble because all that they seem to be doing is causing problems. He has this bag that has wind in it. Uh, he, you know, sort of keeps it to himself. The men think that he's hoarding gold. They open it up. And of course, it blows the ship to smithereens. Um, so crashes them into another island. So, okay. So now they're just get rid of them. They're all dead. Um, and Odysseus is uh, now uh, on his own. Uh, and then that's when he ends up with Calypso, where we found him at the very beginning of this story, right? So now we're all caught up. And that's uh, sort of the whole story that he ends up telling the king and the queen. Uh, the king and the queen, they're moved by Odysseus's story. So they decided they'll send him back to Ithaca on a ship. Uh, so they send him away on a ship. And then we get this kind of very um, to me, again, it's only a fictional story, so I can say this, a very amusing kind of little sidebar where the ship that drops Odysseus finally off at home, because it's funny, you'd figure once it drops Odysseus off at home, it'd be, we just follow Odysseus from there, but we end up following the ship. And of course, Poseidon is now really upset that they took him home. So they, you know, I think he turns the ship to stone or something and it sinks to the bottom of the sea, something along those lines. And and the uh, and the, the the people who have just saved Odysseus, they take away one key message from this. They basically watch all of this happening and they say, "All right, we're never helping anyone again." <laughs> and then we just cut away. Again, it's another one of those moments that would be amusing in a film. And the moral of this story is never help anyone. So okay, so then we go back to Odysseus back on the island. We, uh, Odysseus meets up with Athena, the goddess, 
Um, she disguises Odysseus as a beggar. He finds his uh, old swine herd, a farmer named Eumaeus. Uh, Eumaeus obviously doesn't recognize Odysseus. He's disguised, but he takes in this disguised Odysseus. Uh, Telemachus then, or Telemachus returns home too. He reunites with his father. His father does reveal who he is to his son. And now they plan how they're gonna kill the suitors. They make their way to the palace where the suitors, as well as some of the maidservants mock uh, Odysseus. The suitors fight with the disguised Odysseus. Excuse me, again, they don't know who Odysseus is. He's still he's still uh, disguised as this, as this beggar character. Um, Athena then convinces Penelope, who knows that Telemachus is home, but doesn't know that Odysseus is back yet. Athena convinces Penelope to make this announcement that she's going to finally choose a husband. And she holds this contest uh, to see, um, she puts up these axes. And, um, and the contest is the first suitor who can shoot an arrow through all 12 axes uh, will get to marry her. You know, I mean, obviously things have, have changed over time, um, but uh, that was, I guess, the way that it was done at this point in time. Just get the sword through the axes and you can marry me. Uh, none of the suitors are able to accomplish this. A disguised Odysseus gives it a try. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, of course, let's see this guy try. And he's successful. He shoots the arrow uh, through the 12 axes. And then people are like, huh? And then he shoots the next arrow at one of the suitors. And that begins this bloodbath wherein both the suitors and the maidservants are killed. He then, at that point, once he kills everybody, uh, I, I mean, everybody, it's the one of the most destructive. This Again, I talked about the Iliad as being very violent. There's not, obviously, there's a lot of um, uh, crewmen eating in the Odyssey, um, but... Uh, there's, it's not particularly a violent text until we get to this moment where he kills everybody basically in the palace. Uh, and at that point, he reveals himself to Penelope. She's still not sure to believe that this is actually her husband. So what she does is she has this little trick where she orders her servant to move her bed. She says, move my bed. And Odysseus yells out, no, it can't be moved because it's been carved out of this olive tree and that olive tree is still standing right there's this like all like it's part of the house the olive tree um and so the bed is like part of this actual tree um and then she, that's how she realizes okay this is him because nobody else I don't, uh, nobody else would know this except for odysseus so then he goes to see his father laertes he's still in disguise but then he removes his disguise and they're reunited now there's just one problem still left. And that is that the parents of all the eligible bachelors in town are a little bit upset because Odysseus has just slaughtered them all. So they're all upset. They want to kill Odysseus. But then Athena steps in, she cools things down, and she makes all well in the land of Ithaca again. The book then ends presumably with Odysseus about to start that other journey that Tiresias predicted. Um, and um, saying, you know, the journey that he has to make in order to uh, appease Poseidon. But that's the Odyssey. That's essentially the story. Again, it's a very fun book. A lot of a lot of exciting and uh, fun things happen in that text. So uh, let's see. I have some notes here that I want to read, but it's just taking me some time to get down here. Just give me a second. Okay. Okay, let me just take another drink here. Mm. 
I have to go back up because one of the things that I wanted to read first is a quote on the Odyssey from Bob Dylan. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, and uh, apparently Bob Dylan's a big fan of the Odyssey, and he had this to say. He said, uh, in a lot of ways, hold on a second, I'm going to try. In a lot of ways, some of the same things have happened to you. This is him talking about the experiences of uh, Odysseus. In a lot of ways, some of these same things have happened to you. You too have had drugs dropped into your wine. I don't know if I've had that, <laughs> incidentally. But okay. You too have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You too have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies. You, too, have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You've had angered people. You have angered people. Angered people you should not have. And you, too, have rambled this country all around. <laughs> I don't know if I'm doing a good deal in here. And you've also felt that ill wind, the one that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. Maybe I should read that straight through just so you can get that. In a lot of ways, some of these things have happened to you. You, too, have had drugs dropped into your wine. You too, Maybe he's talking to a specific person. You, too, have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You, too, have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies, the sirens. You, too, have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You've angered people you should not have. And you too have rambled this country all around and you've also felt that ill wind, the one that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. So, you know, he's obviously saying there that there's a little bit of Odysseus in, uh, in all of us. Um, but I can see actually beyond that, I can see, and here's really what I want to talk about with the Odyssey and why I find it to be such an interesting poem and book. I can see it as being the kind of story and I can see Odysseus as being the kind of character that would appeal to somebody like Bob Dylan. Now, in order to really explain that, I actually want to take a few minutes here to talk about somebody who's not Homer, the Odyssey, Odysseus, or Bob Dylan, but I want to talk about um, uh, the comedian Norm MacDonald. Norm MacDonald, as David Letterman used to call him. Now, Norm MacDonald was one of my favorite comedians, <clears throat> really kind of sort of subversive, um, countercultural comedian, certainly said things that could offend you at times, but thought he was a really uh, fantastic, fantastic comedian. Now, as you know, if you've been following this podcast, I'm Canadian and Norm Macdonald's Canadian. But And I've listened to a lot of his interviews over the years. And the thing about Norm Macdonald's interviews when he talks about Canada is that depending on who he's talking to, he could have been he he he's he could be from anywhere in Canada. So I think I think where he's actually from is somewhere in Quebec. Um but he's, I don't think he's from Montreal, although I believe I've heard interviews where he said he was from Montreal. I've heard other interviews where he said he's from Ottawa, so not Quebec at all. I've heard other interviews where he said he's from Toronto. There's another interview where he said I, he was, there's a good interview. I, it used to be on YouTube. I don't know if it's still on YouTube, 
where he is talking to Robert Duvall, the actor Robert Duvall. And in that interview, Norm MacDonald tells Robert Duvall that he's from Alberta. <clears throat> now, why does he do that? He's clearly not from Alberta. <clears throat> also clearly not from Toronto, I don't think. Although I certainly wouldn't say that he never spent time in these places. Um, but he's not from Alberta, and he tells Robert Duvall that he is. So why why does he do that? Well, I think I think the reason why becomes clear in the interview, because as soon as he says that to Robert Duvall, Robert Duvall says, you know, Alberta is the only place in Canada that I like, which if you kind of know a little bit about Robert Duvall, who I think is a fantastic actor, <clears throat> it makes some sense that that's the province in Canada that he would like the best is Alberta. And I don't know if Norm Macdonald somehow knew that Robert Duvall's favorite Canadian province is Alberta, because maybe he said it in an interview, but I can't see an interview with, with an, act, an American actor where somebody just says randomly, what's your favorite Canadian province? Or what's the only part of Canada that you like? Maybe he did. I, I know that Norm Macdonald was a big fan of Robert Duvall, so it's quite possible that he had read a lot of stuff about him and just just knew. It's also quite possible that and McDonald just knew enough about Robert Duvall to correctly guess that his favorite province would have been Alberta. Uh, and actually along those lines, while we're talking about this, there is something that I want to share. And I'm, I've been hesitant about sharing this just because there's really no reason to share it other than just like to be excited to, to share it because it was exciting when this happened. <clears throat> this is from um, 2015. Um, I just screen captured this. I was, I was happened to be involved in a, um, a, sm a small conversation with Norm Macdonald over Twitter one night. Uh, and uh, it lasted for like an hour. It was me and a few other people were involved, but we were talking about Canadian literature because my, the thing that I specialize in is Canadian literature. And actually one of the, one of the things that he, that he said in the conversation was because I knew that Norm Macdonald was a big fan of Russian literature in particular, not just Russian literature, but he was really a huge fan, especially of Leo Tolstoy. But he read a lot of a lot of Russian literature. He called kind of Dostoevsky sort of a pop version. I think I think he said it's like candy or something like that. Really a fan of sort of the meat and potatoes Russian literature of Leo Tolstoy. And uh, when I told him that I did Canadian literature, he's like he said to he said in the the Twitter exchange, he's like you gotta you gotta do it all. You can't just do one thing. You gotta do it all. And I said, well, you know, I I, I agree that you. As you know from this um, podcast, I agree that that you do. I agree with his basic point, which is that you do have to kind of experience as much as possible. And so, if you're talking about literature, you shouldn't just focus on one particular part of it. You should read as much of it from different places, from different people, from different times. Yeah, you should try and get as much of it in as possible in order to t 
take in as many potential possibilities that you can. So I agreed with them, but then I said also what is also true when you're when you're in academia, you're forced to specialize in a, a specific topic, and mine is Canadian literature. And he said, "Oh, I didn't know that." Uh, but then he said, "Can you guess what my favorite Canadian novel is, or maybe who my favorite Canadian author is?" Um, and I didn't know. I've never. I had never heard him talk about Canadian literature before. Um, but uh, I did wager a guess. And uh, I let's see if I can share this here. So I said, I feel like if you could read this, I feel like Norm would be a Morley Callahan fan, maybe the most Russian of the Canadians. And as you can see there, now I I save this because he deleted his tweets all the time. So I, I, I had saved this. I'm just trying to see actually if I have the uh, Morley Callahan's book. Just give me a second here. Do a quick little search for it. We had a flood where we lost uh, a whole bunch of our books. So that may have been one that got lost in the flood, but Morley Callahan, if you can still hear me, I'm talking off, off screen here, but you know, Morley Callahan's novel, such as my beloved, Morley Callahan famously boxed Ernest Hemingway uh, in, a, in a boxing match and won. And uh, for that reason, too, <laughs> I kind of thought maybe Norm MacDonald would be a fan of Morley Callahan. And so he said, yeah, you'd be right. Uh, and Saul Bellow, if he is considered Canadian, because we were also, somebody else brought up the fact that Saul Bellow was, um, uh, was, Spent some time in Canada. Uh, so uh, could potentially be called a Canadian author, although he's typically not categorized as one. Um, but anyway, I didn't know. I had no idea if Norm MacDonald had even heard of Morley Callahan. But he said that, yes. That, and I said, yeah, I would say that at the time, and this is, there's another, I could bring up this tweet as well, but I'm not going to. Um, I said um, that such is my beloved uh, Morley Callahan's book is probably my top three Canadian novels. And he said, it's probably my top one Canadian novel. So um, it was, it was in some ways a lucky guess, but in other ways, it just came from sort of intuiting him based on what I knew about him. And I say all that just to bring us back to why Norm Macdonald said he was from Alberta with Robert Duvall, because I think that on some basic level, Norm Macdonald thought, he would get a better interview that Duvall would warm up to him even more if he believed that Norm Macdonald was from Alberta, even though he wasn't. Now, so Norm did that a lot, right? He would say in all these different time, you know, in all these different occasions that he was from a different place in Canada. Um, and I think, I think one of the reasons why he would do that or where he got that tactic from, because we'll talk about the reasons why to do it in a little bit. But I think where he got that tactic from was from Bob Dylan, because I know that Bob Dylan was a hero of his. And actually, um, I will. Uh, uh, um, Norm Macdonald tells a great Bob Dylan story, and maybe as a kind of a tribute to Norm, I will do that now because I've done it. I tell this to to a lot of people. Um, anybody who's ever been to a Bob Dylan show in the last 20 years or so will know that when he plays his old songs, he has radically rearranged them. Uh, 
And so you go to one of his concerts and I went to one of his concerts in uh, 2009, I think. And around that time, 2008, 2009. It, and, and it would be, be like two minutes, two or three minutes into one of his songs where you'd say, oh, it's, it's all over now, baby blue. But I had no idea what it was until now. And so there, and this would happen over and over and over again. And everybody sort of goes to his shows. Anybody who's been there will, will tell basically the same story. So uh, Norm MacDonald tells the story about how he went to go see Bob Dylan in uh, probably in L.A. And they're watching the show and and it's about halfway through the show. And suddenly halfway through, Dylan just looks out into the audience and he says, and he was staring out there for like a minute. And then he goes, Ringo, Ringo. And then the spotlight comes on somewhere, like lo tries to find the spot in the audience that Bob Dylan is looking at. And it lands on Ringo Starr, who's there seeing the show. And, uh, and so then Dylan and Ringo start having this conversation and you can only hear Dylan's side of it because of course Ringo's not mic'd out in the audience so they're just going back and forth and and the audience is just sitting there just watching Dylan have a conversation with somebody who they can't hear and then finally Dylan says all right I got to go back to this thing he's calling the concert that he's doing for everybody in the room this thing and he says uh he says uh do you have any requests and Ringo I guess Norm was near Ringo so he could hear uh, Ringo yells out, Maggie's Farm. And Dylan says, we did that one already. So anyway, that's the story that uh, uh, very accurate, I think, <laughs> description of a, of a Bob Dylan uh, concert. But that story, along with others, he, he in, the, in his autobiography or faux autobiography that Norm MacDonald wrote, um, he quotes Dylan, um, uh, uh, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the book, to live outside the law, you must be honest. From um, I think it's absolutely sweet Marie from the Blonde on Blonde album. Anyway, I promise you, I I will take this back to the Odyssey. It will it will start to make sense, and it does it does strike me that we that this one's going to be a long one tonight because there's going to be more things to say. Um, but you know, Dylan would do those things as well. So I'm actually going to. Um, uh, share this other screen here. I was just trying to find an example uh, of Dylan doing this. And there's this page that I was just looking at on Shakespeare comic books called Shakespeare, Dylan, and Self-Creation Myths. And uh, they say, you know, everybody does it in minor ways, but the scale of deception deployed by Bob Dylan when he emerged first emerged on the New York music scene was heroic. Interesting that it uses the word heroic there. For one thing, he wasn't Bob Dylan at all, but Robert Zimmerman, though that seems of minor importance. Just want to make sure that this is up on screen. Uh, compared to the elaborate tales he told of a wild boyhood spent roaming the U.S. Interviewed in 1962, he claimed... I was with the carnival off and on for six years. I skipped a lot of things and I didn't go to school for a bunch of years. Two years later, he was explained to Nat Hentoff of the New Yorker. I started running when I was 10, but I always, but always I'd get picked up and sent home. When I was 13, I was traveling with a carnival through upper Minnesota and North and South Dakota. And I got picked up again. I tried it again and again. And when I was 18, I cut out for good. 
Uh, and then he's, then the writer here goes on to say, it now seems astonishing that the scale of his self-invention wasn't challenged. Didn't anybody think to check with his high school or maybe ask his parents? Yeah, all of, whoops, all of that information is, is uh, untrue, right? Dylan was this sort of master of self-creation and self-mythology. Um, there's this movie called I'm Not There, which I think is one of the best movies of the last 20 years or so, which is a biopic of Bob Dylan, where Bob Dylan is played by, I think, six people, including Kate Blanchett is one of them, and uh, who actually, out of everybody playing Bob Dylan in that movie, is the most like Bob Dylan. The rest of the characters are really not like Bob Dylan at all, and in fact are not named Bob Dylan. None of the characters are named Bob Dylan, I don't think. And so, you know, it's a, it's an interesting biopic because in many ways it kind of reveals actually a truth about Bob Dylan, which is that there are so many Bob Dylans and he created this persona for himself, not only created it, but recreated it, undid previous ones, recreated new ones, that there was never really any actual Bob Dylan, some tangible, real Bob Dylan that you could go back to, because he was always just this character of transformation uh, again and again. And I think that, uh, you know, that that is the reason why, you know, he has upset his audiences so often over the years that the folkies got extremely upset when he went electric, that the, you know, boomers got upset when he went when he went religious that, you know, people now go and see his shows and are like, why aren't you playing the songs that in a way that I can understand them? And it's taken me five minutes to realize that you're doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, the times they are changing or something like that, which itself is, should be only a three minute song. And you've gone on for six minutes already. Um, you know, he's, he's this character of repeated self invention to the point where, yeah, he's not there. Now, and I think that Norm MacDonald picked up a lot of that from uh, Dylan as well. Uh, he, by the way, Norm MacDonald does often, does still get kind of get called off for his um, politics. Um, somebody the other day referred to him as a kind of a, a, a conservative. But I've heard an interview, if you listen to his Mark Maron interview, he said that he says some things at times specifically with the intention of getting people upset. And that's the only reason why he says it. It's not because he believes it. So what did he believe? Well, we don't necessarily know for sure. Who is Bob Dylan? I don't think we ever really do know. I don't think we can ever really know. I think that in many ways, he's just continually recreating himself. Now, you know, that's, we could kind of quibble about whether or not that's a legitimate thing to do. I think that the reason why both Norm MacDonald and Bob Dylan did these things was because, and if you know anything about them as, as uh, if you've studied them at all, like, like I have, you kind of know that these are guys that would hate to be put in a box. They would hate for somebody to come along and say, I know who you are. I know everything about you. Uh, they would resist that. They would say, no, you don't know anything about me. In fact, I find that I remember I was I think a lot of people are like that, too, when they're when they're younger. Right. Like I'm sure many of you have had the experience where your parent, a parent of yours will come along and they'll try to accurately predict 
something about you. And it irks you because it's like you don't want to be you don't want to be predictable. You don't want somebody to know you so well that they will know what you do before before you do it because you feel kind of powerless when that's the case. You almost feel like you're not your own person. And I think that there, that spirit was at, is at work in Bob Dylan and was at work in Norm MacDonald, that they are continuously recreating who they are because they don't ever want anybody else to feel too comfortable about being able to categorize them. And that can be to some degree empowering. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. But my point here in talking about this for such a long time is that Odysseus, I think, is an ideal character for the, for those kinds of people, right? Uh, if we look at the Iliad, for example, if we go back to looking at the Iliad, we talked about in that text that a lot of the characters in that text are kind of powerless. The gods are consistently meddling in the affairs of what's going on. The, whether the Trojans or the Achaeans are winning in that war often doesn't come down to, as, as the story is told, doesn't come down to what the individual people are doing, but what the gods are doing up above in terms of motivating action. Uh, if they, if one god wants the Trojans to win for a while, the Trojans will win for a while. People are very much powerless. Um, the gods control the action, but there is also this kind of, um, as I said, amongst the soldiers themselves in the Iliad, amongst the fighters, there's this Klingon mentality, right? Where uh, man, man should be brave, man should be a warrior. We also have Achilles who says to Odysseus, because Odysseus is a character in the Iliad. I don't know if I talked about that at the time, but Odysseus is a character in the Iliad. Uh, he's one of the people, the first people that is sent to try to get Achilles to come back into fighting the Trojan War. And Achilles basically tells Odysseus to stuff it at that discussion. But at, when he's talking to Odysseus, Achilles says, this is a quote, him do I hate, even as the gates of hell, who says one thing while he hides another in his heart. I hate someone who says one thing, but hides another in his heart. Now, it's very, very, very interesting, I think, that Achilles says this to Odysseus, of all people, because Odysseus, in the Odyssey, is precisely a man who says one thing while hiding another in his heart. And as the hero of the Odyssey, he's in many ways the antithesis of the heroes that we see in the Iliad. Not that he's not a brave warrior, because in many ways he does still have that sort of Klingon mentality about being brave and fighting and today's a good day to die and revenge is the best dish, best served cold or whatever. He's got all of that kind of stuff, but he is not in the same way controlled by the gods. I'm not saying he's not controlled by the gods at all. The gods do play a role, like Athena plays a role, like he is trapped by Calypso for seven years, like Poseidon places a curse on them. They do still play a role, but they are in fact much more in the background in the Odyssey than they were in the Iliad. And in the Odyssey, Odysseus is much more willing and able to take control over his own actions than what we see in the Iliad, despite some of those constraints that I just talked about with Calypso, Poseidon, and so on and so forth. The fact of the matter is, a 
man who says one thing while he hides another in his heart fits Odysseus perfectly. The opening line of the poem suggests that Odysseus is a man of twists and turns, right? Like Dylan, who's always constantly trying to resist categorization, Odysseus is twisting and turning. He also cannot be um, categorized. He's also not easily predicted. Um, he is talked about throughout the text as being a man of cunning. So I counted up in the Odyssey as best I could the amount of times where Odysseus either says one thing while hiding another or simply just appearing in disguise, right? Appearing at, you know, like the way Bob Dylan says, you know, I was in the carnival for many years, like the way Norm MacDonald says that I'm from Alberta, right? So, you know, I've counted up all these moments. So, okay, we learn from, even before Odysseus appears in the story, we learn from Helen that he dressed up as a beggar to get into the, into the, into Troy. Um, we have the uh, Trojan horse itself, which is a kind of disguise, right? That Odysseus is inside of. Um, when he lands on the island of the Phoatians, where he ends up telling the story of the Odyssey, he doesn't tell them what his name is for a really long time. He kind of keeps that to himself. When the Cyclops asks his name, he said his name is No Man. Um, Odysseus lies to Ath Athena when he lands on Ithaca in, in chapter 13 because um, he's not sure who she is. So he lies about who he is. Then she helps disguise Odysseus once she learns who he is to appear as someone else um, in book 14. Odysseus tells Eumaeus, his wine herd, his former helper, that he's from Crete. Not that he's from Ithaca, but he's from Crete. He maintains his disguise in several discussions with Penelope because, in fact, he once he goes back to the palace, he still talks to Penelope for a few times in disguise. She doesn't know that it's uh, Odysseus. He tells uh, a similar story to Penelope about being from Crete that he told uh uh, Athena, that he tells Eumaea, although the stories each time are different. Um, he is in disguise the first time that he meets Telemachus, and even when he goes to see his father, once the bloodbath is over, he still decides to begin that discussion first in disguise. Um, I want to just concentrate for a moment on the stories that he tells when he gets into Ithaca. So I wrote this down as well. When he meets Athena, as soon as he lands, uh, in Ithaca, uh, he he's not sure who she is, so he tells her he's from Crete, but he's on the run after he killed a man because that man spread false rumors about him um, and, uh, and was trying to rob him. Um, when he talks to Eumaeus, he also introduces himself as a person from Crete, but then he says that he spent years in Egypt and he's now on the run from this crew who tried to sell him into slavery. When he talks to Penelope, he also, he talks about how he's from Crete, but that he didn't fight in the Trojan War. He stayed at home while his older brother went off to fight. So there are similar threads through the three stories that he tells. In all stories, there is a man named uh, Idomeneus. In the first, Idomeneus is the father of the man he kills for spreading rumors about him. Uh, in the following two stories, Idomeneus is his brother. But in the second story that he tells to Eumaeus, uh, he goes to Troy with his brother. And in the last story, Idomeneus is the more valiant brother who leaves for Troy without him. So this is interesting because 
a lot of what happens in the earlier books, you'll remember if you go back and look at the Epic of Gilgamesh text, I talked about how there was a lot of repetition in that book. There's also a lot of repetition in the Iliad, and there's even repetition in the Odyssey as well. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of times they talk about rosy-fingered Don. You know, you get a lot of repetition in these texts. And, you know, big chunks of texts are repeated, not just, you know, one line, one description. You get sort of multiple sentences that are repeated they could have easily just repeated the the lie that odysseus tells um um uh, athena right just like you know when gilgamesh is asked why is your face so withdrawn you know why is your hair so long uh, odysseus always says this uh, sorry gilgamesh always says the same thing odysseus changes it up which tells you that he likes to tell stories. He likes to make things up. He likes to change things the more that he tells them. And this is even more interesting when we learn that when we when we really think about it, that the story of the Odyssey, you know, that we think about when we think about the Odyssey, the story of the Cyclops, the land of the giants, the lotus plants, that that story we get as a story from Odysseus. He tells that to the king and queen, right? We don't get that as some kind of third person narrative. We get that as a story from Odysseus. And we all, all the other stories that we get from Odysseus, we know are lies. He just completely makes them up. Now, certain things we know have to be true. We do get the story of Calypso third hand, so we know that that's true. We get stories from Menelaus and Helen about dress, him dressing up as a beggar. So those are kind of secondhand stories. But given the way that Odysseus spins these yarns over and over and over again in the story, even within his own stories, he's lying. When he tells the, tells the Cyclops that his name is No Man, he's lying then as well. How can we trust that the thing that happened to him, that all the things that he says happened to him actually happened to him. Um, Athena uh, says this at uh, in book 13, when Odysseus lands in, um, in Ithaca, uh, and he tells the story about being from Crete. Athena says, he must be indeed a shifty lying fellow who could surpass you Odysseus, in all manner of craft, right? The person who can be better than you has to be uh, indeed a shifty lying fellow, uh, even though you had a god for your antagonist. Daredevil that you are, full of guile, unwearying in deceit. Can you not drop your tricks and your instinctive falsehood, your instinctive falsehood, even now that you are in your own country again? We will say no more, however, about this, for we can both of us deceive upon occasion, right? This is the reason why Athena likes Odysseus so much, because she likes deception as well. So Odysseus is kind of like her favorite of all the people, because He's a, he does, he's a, she is just as deceptive as he is. And she's always disguising herself throughout the story, right? This is a story of a lot of disguises, right? But think of the words that she's using here to describe Odysseus, full of guile, unwearying and deceit. He never tires of deceit. He has an instinctive falsehood, right? This is a guy who's continuously, obviously, and this is the, this is before he starts to tell those other stories to Eumaeus, to Penelope. So 
Athena has seen this before, right? So we know that he tells these stories a lot. So yeah, how do we know that the story that we come to associate with Odysseus, that we come to associate with the Odyssey, is meant to be understood as something that really happened to Odysseus? Or does he just like telling stories? The stories are incredibly fantastical. I mean, obviously there's the sort of the reality of the book, which is already a little bit fantastical, where you get these, where you get gods who are, you know, instructing action and things like that. But, you know, his stories are really, um, you know, things that you just hardly saw in the Iliad at all. You saw a little bit of that, like when the water comes alive. But for the most part, those moments are few and far between. In the Odyssey, when he tells his story about to the king and queen about what happened to him after Troy, it's a land of giants. It's a land of cyclopses. It's a land of lotus flowers. It's a it's um, you know uh, going down to Hades. Uh, you know, it's all of these stories, sort of one after the other, that are extraordinarily far fetched. And are they far fetched because this is just a fantastical story that's written in ancient Greece, or are they far fetched because uh, Odysseus entirely made them up? Right. So. Um, I think that that's, um, we don't know, right? Maybe they happen to him, but maybe they don't. And again, once again, this is kind of where Odysseus has a good amount of power, right? You can't really peg him. Are you telling the truth? Are you not telling the truth? Who are you, Odysseus? We don't really know. Um, in fact, when he does tell the Cyclops in his story that he is no man, that might be one of the most honest things that he actually says, right? That's his equivalent of Bob Dylan saying, I'm not there, which by the way, is not just the title of the movie, but the title of one of his songs. Uh, I'm not there. Um, I'm no man. Um, and, you know, he's not doing these things. He's, I don't think, at least we don't see in the story that he's not deceptive and um, instinctively false um for inherently bad reasons you know there's there's you may ask yourself a reasonable question which is what kind of hero is this who is full of guile and unwearying deceit but in actual fact uh and it, and it should be said too uh well in actual fact you know he, he tends to not reveal too much about himself until he feels safe to do so right let's not forget that he, you know he's landing in all these strange places um, where people seem to be out to get him a lot. And now that he's back on Ithaca, we do know that there are these suitors who have already plotted to kill Odysseus's son. So, uh, and when T Telemachus goes off, they say, when he comes back, we're going to basically ambush him and kill him. They are not successful in doing so, but that is their plan. So you can kind of certainly see that when Odysseus comes back and pretends to not be Odysseus, but pretends to be this character from Crete who's had all these strange things happen to him. There's a there's a reason for that. Uh, we have to remember that even for all of his superior guile, which Athena mentions, he still has been caught a whole bunch of times. He was caught by Calypso for seven years, right? You can imagine this guy who's actually pr pretty, you know, swift uh, when it comes to like getting out of certain situations you can imagine really how depressed he must have been on that island being there for seven years when we first come upon odysseus he's kind of like 
on his own, looking out into the water, kind of like, oh, God, how did I get myself into this mess? Um, so, you know, uh, there's that. He does get trapped by uh, the Cyclops, uh, which is why he ends up having to, to stab him in the eye. So, you know, and we also we also get the story earlier in the book that, that Telemachus receives uh, about Agamemnon, right? Agamemnon, who came back home to find that his wife was with married to another man, and then they both conspired to murder him, right? So he's coming back to a very similar sort of situation. Um, so there's reasons for him to be sort of deceptive in this way. So yeah, he's not like a lot of the heroes in the Iliad. He's certainly not like the hero of the Iliad, Achilles, who says that I cannot be other than who I am. Actually, let me just read that quote again because I've already sort of lost it and I'm mangling it. I cannot be a man who says one thing while he hides another in his heart. Odysseus is not like that at all, obviously. But the difference between Odysseus and those characters is that Odysseus is still alive. Agamemnon is dead. Hector is dead. Achilles is dead. Odysseus is most likely going to live for a very long time, right? Is going to die old. And you know what? We can, again, we can quibble over whether what he does is right, whether he, what he does is wrong, whether the values of Achilles is better than the values of Odysseus. Certainly, I think that that's up for debate. And that's something that you can kind of consider for yourself. Who, what kind of person would I rather be? Would I rather be like, you know, the Klingons and Achilles? Would I rather be like, you know, Bob Dylan and, uh, and Odysseus? I think though that you, it's just honest to admit the fact that the life of, of Achilles is inevitably going to be short, but the life of Odysseus is going to be quite long. Um, he's a survivor. His survival depends, I think, on two things, right? One is his incredible self-reliance. Now, we tend to associate individualism with the Enlightenment, right? We tend to think that the kind of Enlightenment era, which begins around 1715, is when you start to see this notion of individualism because it's a breaking away of feudalism where you know you're basically born into a role you die in that role uh it's an it's an era uh, of dogma where somebody tells you what to think what to believe um you don't get to decide your own destiny other people do and in the enlightenment era that all starts to break down dog uh, uh, the idea of dogma starts to break down and people start to celebrate the idea of determining one's own life. That's we tend to think of, we tend to think of individualism in association with enlightenment ideals. But I think we can see a lot of elements of it well before that in a book like the Odyssey. So from the podcast in our time, Odysseus, they have a discussion of the Odyssey there, and they describe Odysseus as a self-sufficient peasant farmer. I mean, he's a king, but he is also very self-sufficient. Uh, he has to use, this is again, I'm quoting, he has to use so many different types of skill. He has the biggest epic swim in world literature, which he does. Uh, he has to swim for five days. Uh, he's a fantastic carpenter. He can do plowing competitions. He can toss a discus to win the Olympics. He can do practically everything. The versatility of this man, he's actually like a very clever peasant farmer. And the idea of being self-reliant 
interestingly enough, this is a, again a quote, the idea of being self-reliant is a very important factor in the Greek idea of the great man, someone who can look after himself. He's proto-democrat from that point of view. He's Aristotle's autarkic man. Now, I had to look up what, autark what an autarkic man was because I didn't know what an autarkic man was, uh, what, what was meant by that. So I looked it up. I will admit I, will look, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Now, a lot of people will tell you, you're not a very good academic for looking things up on Wikipedia. Uh, I often will tell my students that uh, while I certainly wouldn't, you know, quote and cite from Wikipedia in a research paper, it's not a bad place to get very basic information. So just put that aside. So Wikipedia uh, talks about autarky, and they say that uh, autarky essentially means being self-reliant. And they go on to say that it is an ideal or method which has been embraced by a wide range of political ideologies and movements, especially left-wing ideologies like African socialism, mutualism, war communism, council communism, communalism, syndicalism, especially anarcho-syndicalism, which I've talked about before on this uh, channel, and leftist populism, generally in an effort to build alternative economic structures or to control resources against structures uh, against structures that uh, uh, I, and then it goes off into something that I guess I didn't quote uh, correctly. Uh, but then it says the late Bronze Age in ancient Greek, the Bronze Age is a prehistorical period, approximately 3300 to 1200 BC, which saw formerly self-sufficient palace economies rely more heavily on trade, which may have been a contributing factor to the eventual Bronze Age collapse. Remember that these texts come out of the Bronze Age collapse, and in the case of the Iliad, I think, look back to that earlier period with some reverence. Um, that was when multiple crises hit those systems at once. After that collapse, the idea of autarky formed a part of emerging Greek political culture, emphasizing economic self-sufficiency and local self-rule. So I think what's interesting about this is that it's talking about individualism and it's talking about self-sufficiency, but it's clearly not the kind of rampant individualism that we often associate with capitalism. The fact that it's associated with these left-wing movements suggests to me that autarky really relates more with the concept of a non-hierarchical system, one in which one gets to have some meaningful control over their own lives rather than a kind of system in which basically corporations can rule without laws against them or anything like that. Um, so again, let's not forget that while the gods play more of a backseat role in this story, they still play a fundamental role in controlling what happens to Odysseus, but he is nevertheless able to control situations in roles that we just don't see as significantly in the Iliad. And that brings me to the second reason for Odysseus's survival, his ability to be anonymous. He often has control in situations because people don't know who he is, and he's not all that forthcoming with information. He can find out things about you, but you can't find things out about him, which makes me think of Odysseus as a potential liminal figure. Um, this came up in something else that I listened to where they talked about uh, Odysseus as a potential trickster figure. Um, but um, the trickster and the, the trickster figure and the liminal figure are very much sort of wrapped together. And here I'm going to quote a writer named Alison Wolf. And Alison Wolf says this, 
because you might be wondering, what do you mean by a liminal figure? And this is how Wolf describes them. She says, liminal figures are located somewhere between structures of society, never truly belonging to one or another. In this sense, trickster figures in mythology have a predisposition to be liminal. Um, so yeah, trickster figures are ones that are always making powerful people flummoxed, right? Because they can't control them in any particular way. William Hines, I'm continuing quoting now, William Hines points out in his discussion of trickster figures that a main characteristic of the trickster is that they appear on the edge or just beyond existing borders, classifications, and categories, as neither liminal nor trickster figures are confined by boundaries. According to Victor Turner, there is a structural invisibility to liminal figures. They may be disguised, interestingly enough, Odysseus is disguised quite a bit in the Odyssey. They may be disguised. Often liminal figures are seen as altering their appearances in one way or another. So is Odysseus a liminal figure? Well, it's difficult to say. You know, the idea of a king the most powerful person around as being a liminal figure who is beyond uh, the beyond the confines of power seems to be a, a little bit odd. But nevertheless, it's hard to not see Odysseus as this kind of character, a character who cannot be categorized. And as is described in that quote from Alison Wolf, you can see how being a liminal figure can be empowering. You cannot be categorized if you are this figure who's always in between at the edge of borders or beyond borders. When you can't be categorized, you can't be boxed in. You can't be the person who somebody says, I know all this about you. You are slipping through the networks of classifications. You're kind of rendered in some ways invisible, not actually invisible, but you know, you're beyond a lot of people's basic understanding of things because in order for people to understand things, usually they like to categorize them. They like to put them in boxes. That's how we understand the things that we see, the world that we encounter, the people that we see, right? But when you have a character who refuses to work within those confines, refuses to be put inside those boxes, they become impossible to understand. And sometimes they can become impossible to control, right? And that is where you can find that to be quite empowering. And whether Bob Dylan has kind of thought of it that way, whether Norm MacDonald thought of it that way, they were those kinds of characters in many ways too, I think. Uh, and Odysseus is another one of those kinds of characters. So again, that's where I kind of see why Bob Dylan would have been or is a fan of this text. Now, finally, one final point. What about Penelope? What about Odysseus's wife, Penelope? We started off this discussion a little bit by talking about how some have various different perspectives on gender in this text. Samuel Butler, and you have to remember this is somewhere around the turn of the century between the 19th and 20th century. So this would have been accompanied by all the, the um, probably prevailing assumptions about gender at that particular time. But he thought that the text was so um, forward uh, woman-centric, that it would have been written by a woman. You have other people arguing that the text is paternalistic in it, the way that it engages with the idea of gender. Excuse me. But I think at one point, I, there's a couple points that I, I do want to just sort of bring up in relation to that. Um, you'll recall I talked about how Odysseus lands on this uh, 
this land. He's taken in by the king and queen, and that's where he tells his story. But before he's taken in by the king and queen, he meets their daughter, Nausicaa. Um, and they have, a, they have a kind of long back and forth. Uh, Nausicaa, I think, clearly likes... Uh, Odysseus quite a bit um, but they talk about you know marriage and things like that and at one point Odysseus says to Nausicaa may heaven grant you in all things your heart's desire husband house and a happy peaceful home and he says this for there is nothing better in this world than that man and wife should be of one mind in a house now this is something that came up I think in the I think in the in our time podcast that I listened to where the host of that show said, yeah, there are problems when when it comes to gender in the Odyssey. He says, but that part is not really the surprise. Because if you look at a text from that long ago, you would expect there to be problems with gender. What is a surprise is how the text has these moments where it is quite forward thinking. I already talked about Calypso's discussion where she calls out the hypocrisy of the gods, quite rightly calls out the hypocrisy of the gods. They do reach a strange conclusion, but nevertheless, she does call out that hypocrisy. Um, this is another moment in the text where he says, there's nothing better in this world than that man and wife should be of one mind in a house. That's talking about equality in a way that would have been, I think, quite unusual at that time and would remain to be unusual for, you know, over a thousand years. So in many ways, that is quite forward thinking. Now, does he mean, does Odysseus mean that they're equals? Well, it's hard to say, but we see many examples in the Odyssey where, in fact, Penelope is Odysseus's equal. She seems to be his equal in terms of his guile, his cunning, and his deception, right? So um, what do I mean by that? Well, I've, I've talked about a, a few of those examples already, right? Where she tells the suitors that she will marry them when she's finished Laertes' death shroud, and then she never finishes it, right? She purposefully undoes the work that she does every day you have that moment at the end where she's still not entirely sure who Odysseus is. And remember, if we go back to the uh, conversation that we just had about Odysseus, Odysseus is constantly making up falsehoods because he's kind of trying to determine who he's dealing with. You know, he's trying to determine on some level where people's loyalties lie, you know, so he will often say, you know, to, to people, you know, what do you think about it? Well, I don't know if he does say that. <laughs> Maybe I'm just kind of going off unhinged at this point. I'll reel that back. I don't know if he does say that. But I do think that in many ways his deception is often about testing people's loyalties. You know, is this person going to be on my side or not? When he sees Athena, he's like, I don't know who this person is. Maybe they, maybe they would love me. Maybe they want to kill me. So I'll just tell them I'm this person from Crete, and then I'll see what they tell me about them. And then we'll know what's what. Well, Penelope does basically the same thing when she says at the end, when Odysseus says, hey, I'm your husband, Odysseus, it's me. I know it's been 20 years, but it's uh, it's definitely me. And she says, move the, move the bed out of the chamber. And Odysseus kind of falls for her trick, right? He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that bed can't be moved. It's, it's a load-bearing bed. <laughs> you can't move that bed from our... Uh, from our room it's built into the wall it's part of that tree and that's when she knows that it's him 
So she pulls the exact same tricks that Odysseus does. I think we have every reason to believe, in fact, that Penelope is Odysseus's equal. No wonder he's so desperate to get back home. Yes, he has quite a few affairs along the way. Yes, he would be very upset to find out if Penelope had the same kind of affairs that he did. But in many ways, they are equal of mind. Um, and I think that that's, that's very significant. So the kinds of heroes, the kinds of virtues that we're seeing in the Odyssey are very different from the kinds of virtues that we were seeing in the Iliad. Is that because um, they are written by two different people? Maybe. Is that because an author was trying to give us a sense of all the different types of virtues that you could have at this time? Maybe. Um, I think it is worthwhile thinking about, you know, who who was the more virtuous? Who, not virtuous, but who had the right way of living their life? Achilles or Odysseus? I mean, I'm not going to give you that question. I don't know if I even have an answer to that myself. Or maybe, you know, if we sort of take a take a page out of the people we've been talking about tonight, maybe some days you're Achilles, maybe some days you're Odysseus. Maybe some days you tell people you're like Achilles, but in fact you're like Odysseus or vice versa. I think those are some of the interesting questions that we can ask about ourselves that these texts leave us with. And that's what makes them such compelling and interesting reads and really exciting to talk about because I've talked with you now for about an hour and a half about them. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap it up. One of the things that I might do is watch this, the rest of this Blue Jays game, which I'm now finding out they are uh, tied. 5-5. They were in the lead, but it's now tied in the seventh inning. Not excited about that. Um, but I think that I am also potentially going to um, spend uh, at 10 o'clock, I'm going to spend some time uh, looking at the Bad Takes podcast because they uh, always do a good show, which is being simulcast with, um, which is, a, let's see, is it? I just want to check for sure. Is being simulcast with uh, Movie Night Extra, um, I think, tonight. So they're going to be talking about the movie Primary Colors. So I might go over there and take a look at that. This really has petered off a little bit. But I think I'm going to do that. If you're uh, watching now, I, I might encourage you to do that too. All right. All the best, everybody. Thank you for watching the discussion on The Odyssey. I had a lot of fun reading it. I hope you had a lot of fun uh, watching it. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So please feel free to leave them in the comment section below. And I'll talk to you in the next one. Take care. Good night. Bye-bye.